you have your Bibles, would you open up to Psalm 110? It's not a very long psalm. I'll read the, the text in its entirety, then I'll ask the Lord to bless us. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the, the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses, he will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this psalm, for it so clearly and powerfully presents a Savior who is everything that we need, who is our King, who is our priest, who is the only one who can redeem and save us. And Lord, we thank you that you have vested all power into the hands of this King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that he might be glorified even this night. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What can we say about Psalm 110? It's really and truly one of the most important psalms in the entire Psalter. How could you introduce a psalm as grand and wonderful as this one? Well, let me give you just some quick fire facts about Psalm 110 by way of introduction. This psalm is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It's the most quoted psalm. Verse 1 alone is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. The New Testament authors quote or allude to just verse 1 somewhere in the range of 27 times in the New Testament. The book of Hebrews, for example, spends nearly four chapters devoted to exegeting and to explaining and applying just one verse in this psalm. Psalm 110 is the psalm that Jesus used to go back to the Old Testament and to explain his deity, to explain his humanity, both in one text of Scripture. We see that in Matthew 22, Mark 12, and in Luke 20. Psalm 110 is the concluding text of one of the most famous and important sermons ever preached in the history of the world. That's Peter's Pentecost sermon. He concludes that sermon by declaring the truth of Psalm 110. It's been said by theologians that this one psalm teaches on the doctrines of the Trinity, the incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension, the intercession of Christ, the communion of saints, and the last judgment. Now, why do I give you all of these things? I give them to you to suggest to you that this is an important psalm. This is a grand psalm. This is a psalm worthy of our attention 
tonight, but how could we summarize it perhaps a little bit more shorter than that? We could say that Psalm 110 is about the Messiah. It is all purely about our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us that he is the chosen, the eternal, the all-powerful king of God. And then it tells us as well that he is a priest forever. And of course, those, if you're theologically inclined, you recognize as two of the three offices of Christ. That's a very helpful way of summarizing the work, the roles that Christ does for us. What is it that makes him such a great Messiah? Well, he is a prophet, he is a priest, he is a king. And Psalm 110 uh, focuses in on two of those offices, the priesthood and his, his being a king. And so those are going to be my two points Tonight's very simple uh, division of the text. We have Christ the King and we have Christ the Priest. We'll start off with the first point, Christ the King. Look with me at verse 1. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And uh, what I want you to see first is that it begins with something of a Trinitarian scene. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's see the characters that are at play here in Psalm 110. We have the Lord, and that is in all caps, and that's intentional. That is the name of God. That's the God of Israel, the covenant name of God, Jehovah. It's his personal name. And, of course, there is another figure that the Lord is distinguished from here. It is David's Lord, called my Lord, or Adonai. And I will occasionally use those terms to distinguish Lord from Lord, Jehovah, and Adonai. And what is Adonai? Well, it's a a term that means master or Lord. It's a term of honor, a term of position. And once again, this as well is used abundantly as a name for God, just like Jehovah. I uh, went to my... Uh, Bible software, and I merely put in the name Adonai to look back from Psalm 110 just to see how often Adonai is used as a name for God. And I'll just give you a few examples. It's used to describe God in Psalm 79, Psalm 86, 89, 90, 97, 105, 109, and you could just keep going and going and going. It's a very common name to describe God. And so Jehovah is speaking to Adonai, and David is there. He's witnessing these events, uh, led, of course, by the Holy Spirit. And so we do see the Godhead in full display. The, The Father, we might say, is speaking to the Son. And the Spirit is there revealing this to David as a witness. And this isn't a casual conversation that's going on. In verse 1, this isn't a a normal conversation. No, rather, this is a declaration that the Lord is making. He's making a pronouncement, a declaration. It's one that is important and grand. And what is that declaration? That David's Lord, Adonai, will sit at Jehovah's right hand. That's the pronouncement. That's the declaration. That's what's so important for David to hear And see, 
Now, why the right hand? What does it mean to sit at the right hand? Well, to sit at the right hand uh, was a sign of authority. A right hand was a, a symbol of authority, a symbol of strength and one's power. For example, in the Old Testament, very often God promises by his right hand. And if God makes a promise by his right hand, you can be sure that that promise will come true. He's promising on his own authority. And now, he's promising to sit this one, Adonai, David's Lord, at his right hand. It's the father declaring that the son will rule. It's the father declaring that Jesus himself will be placed on the throne. It's a declaration of equal rule, equal authority. That the son, Adonai, will rule just as the father rules. And then this text goes on to wonderfully explain what this rule looks like. And the first thing that we see here is that Christ will rule over his enemies. We see this in verse 1, until I make your enemies your footstool. And again in verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now we need to notice something already. Jesus will have enemies. He will not be universally loved. There will be those who despise him. There will be those who oppose him. There will be those who set themselves against him and That shouldn't surprise us. We've seen this in his earthly ministry. He was mocked for claiming to be the king. It was the soldiers who sarcastically say, you are the king of the Jews while they spit upon him. Now Christ will have many enemies, yet he will conquer them. They shall be a footstool for him. Their necks will be under his feet He will rule over his enemies. And this also speaks to the universal rule of Christ. We see that he is set up in Zion. He's set up in Jerusalem, but but his rule will spread. We see this in verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your, Adonai's, mighty scepter. And so God is not just promising to make him king... He's promising to extend the king's reach all throughout the world. His rule will cross everything. The mighty arm of God will be stretched out to claim every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every people, every place. The father is ensuring that his son will be acknowledged by all. It's really the same thing that Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, there when Paul describes the son, this is what he says. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See the earnestness of verses 1 through 3. God will not settle for anything less than an absolute rule, than a comprehensive rule over the entire earth. But we also see that he doesn't just rule over his enemies. He doesn't just rule over uh, the whole world. He also rules over his people. We see this in verse 3. 
We're told, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. So uh, in comparison or contrast to the enemies of the king, these are the loyal servants. These are not rebels, but they are proud citizens. And it's a beautiful way of describing them. They are said to offer themselves freely, literally to come as a free will offering. It evokes the idea that Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 12, that, that Christ's people will be living sacrifice, sacrifices, giving themselves joyfully, freely, uh, devoting themselves to their king as sacrifices. But it's even more than this in Psalm 110. They're more than just citizens, willful, free citizens of the kingdom. They're also soldiers. We see this as well in the text I just read in verse 3. Look at the end of that sentence. On the day of your power. And one way you can uh, interpret or, or see that word power is as a power of armies. Or it describes sometimes a battle. And so this is uh, a powerful army that is being described here. I enjoy the way that the NIV translates verse 3. It says this, your troops will be willing on your day of battle. And I think that gets very close to what's going on here. This is a description of all of God's people. We are soldiers for Christ. We're members of Christ's army, and it's vital that God's people think of themselves along these terms. You aren't just saved by Christ. You aren't just made a citizen of Christ's kingdom. You have been enlisted into the army of Christ. You're a soldier in the, the name of Christ, wearing the banner of Christ. And what kind of warfare is described here? I think we get a little bit of a hint. If you continue on in verse 3, we're told something about these soldiers. They're wearing holy garments. They're holy soldiers. They're dressed with holy clothing. And I think that's cluing us in on something here. That what is being described here, at least in part, is a moral battle. It's one that is spiritual in nature. I appreciate the words of uh, Thomas Watson, a Puritan. He says that these garments are a spiritual beauty. And it's important for us to recognize this because it shows us how Christ is ruling even today. He's ruling spiritually. He rules from heaven. His kingdom is not like human kingdoms. His soldiers do not fight like earthly armies. That is to say, we do not fight flesh and blood. No, rather, we take up the whole armor of God. And what do we find there in the armor of God? Well, we find a belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, a shoes of peace, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, and a sword of the Spirit, or a sword of the Word of God. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that those are your weapons for war. They are spiritual in nature. We fight this war by holiness. 
We fight this war by lives lived in witness to Christ and even by witnessing to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're soldiers and that means obedience to Jesus. This is how Jesus is going to conquer the whole world. He's going to do it through the gospel. He's going to do it through you and I. Holy soldiers with holy garments, living holy lives and spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how Jesus is going to conquer all of this world. But then we see something else as well about Christ's rule. He will execute judgment. I'm going to skip verse 4 for now and we'll come back to it. But look with me at verses 5 through 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. It's important that we recognize that though Christ works spiritually now, and then he rules spiritually in a spiritual kingdom, that that will not always be true. Here in this text, we're uh, taught with no uncertainty that Christ will come one day truly dressed for war. We're told that he has a day of wrath. In other places of scripture, we call this the day of the Lord. It's spoken of immensely in the Old Testament. It's even spoken of abundantly in the New Testament. I'll just give you a few examples in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 8. We hear about the day of the Lord. It says, When the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see another glimpse of it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. With a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now, what are we to do with this? Well, we need to know this truth and know it deeply. That one day Christ will return. He will pierce through the clouds. One day his war cry will boom across the entire earth. One day he will come with an army of saints and angels. There will be a day when his wrath will be satisfied. When he will go to war against all of the powers of evil and Satan. And yes, all of those who have aligned themselves with Satan by not trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus will come in his wrath. And this shouldn't surprise us. After all, this is Christ's world. And he's simply reminding us that Christ will one day cleanse his world. He will himself banish all evil from his world. Judgment will be done. We need to see this, dear people of God, that Jesus is truly the king of this whole world. He truly is sitting at God's right hand. He has been given divine power ruling over an army of saints and angels. And and yes, he will defeat all his and our enemies. But take heart. That's a king 
that you can trust. That's a king that is not weak. That is a king whose kingdom will not topple. That is a king who cannot be corrupted, who cannot be changed or moved. That is a king that you and I can serve. Well, that's Christ as king. But we see a second thing described for us here in this text. It is Christ as our priest. And we'll mostly be looking at verse 4. Look with me there. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So we saw in verse 1 that the Lord is making a pronouncement. It's a declaration. It's something vital and important. And that declaration was that Jesus would be the king. Well, here he's making a second pronouncement, a second declaration. And there's equally strong language being used here. The Lord has sworn, has promised. He will not change his mind, we are told. And what is this second pronouncement? It's, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want you to notice that there are two very, very surprising things just in that one sentence. Uh, The first surprising thing is this. It is surprising that the one who is to be the king is also to be a prophet, excuse me, a priest. Now, why is that surprising? Well, because in Israel... These two spheres, the king and the priesthood, were very clearly divided from one another. It was not allowed for the king to usurp power or responsibility from the priests and vice versa. There was an assumption in the nation of Israel that that no mere man could dare sit in both offices. There are, uh, uh, there's perhaps a, a parallel with our own government. We understand this naturally, that our own government was built on the idea that one man should not have so much power, and so what did we do? So we set up a a system of checks and balances where there's intentional gridlock built into the system. There's intentionally supposed to be some friction between those who would rule, those who would lead. And it's Something very similar going on in Israel. The the priesthood and the king did not do the same thing. They had separate and distinct powers. This was so important that it was actually the reason that Saul was rejected as king. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 13, why was it that Saul was rejected and then uh, replaced with David? Well, it was this sin. When Saul goes out to battle... And the priests are not there. And he wants to make a burnt offering to uh, ask the Lord to bless their battle, to give them victory. But he doesn't want to wait for the priests to show up. And so what does Saul do? He rashly makes the sacrifice himself and that brings a heap of trouble upon him. That's when the Lord rejects him and says, I'm going to put a man after my own heart in your place. So this is a very established idea. No man could be both priest and king, but not so with the Messiah. He will be both. He will be your priest. He will be your king because he is so much more than a mere man. At the very uh, basic level, this is showing us that Christ can be trusted with all power. We're told that he should be trusted with the power of the kingdom to rule, to lead, to guide, the power of, of the army itself. And he should be 
their worship leader. And he should be their religious leader, their minister who takes them to God. He can do everything. And isn't it the same thing in our life? We can trust Jesus with everything in our life. We can trust Jesus to rule over us and to guide us. We can trust him to protect us and to teach us. We need to let Jesus be in charge. After all, the priest king can handle it. He can handle everything in our lives. Well, that's the first surprising thing, that one man would be both priest and king. But there's a second surprising statement. We're told that he will be after the order of Melchizedek. And what is surprising here is that he's not of the Aaronic order. He's not of the, the Levitical priesthood, the one that is in charge, the main one that everyone thinks about when they think of the priesthood. It's the priesthood that God himself set up at Mount Sinai. And it's surprising that he says the, the Messiah will be a priest, but he won't be an Aaronic priest. Now, David does something Quite mysterious. He goes back much further than Mount Sinai. He goes well beyond Aaron. He goes to a man named Melchizedek. And let me just say that we don't have a lot in Scripture about this man named Melchizedek. He's only mentioned in three places of Scripture. Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and then he's mentioned several times in the book of Hebrews. Uh, just... To show you this, I'll, I'll read for you everything we have about Melchizedek from Genesis. It's just a few short verses. Genesis 14, 17 through 20. We're told this after the Abraham comes back from battle. We're told this. After his return from the defeat of Keterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And that's it. That's the story. So what do we know about this man? Well, very little. We know that he's called Melchizedek, which means king of righteousness. So he's a king of righteousness, we're told. We're told that he comes from Salem which means peace. So he's a king of righteousness and he's a king of peace. And then we're told he is a priest of God most high. And he comes and he blesses Abraham in the name of the Lord. And beyond that, it's just a bunch of speculation. And, and believe me when I say that there is a whole bunch of speculation about who in the world Melchizedek is and why he comes out. Because he just is that mysterious of a man, I, I won't uh, um, go down that rabbit trail of describing to you all the various theories of who he is. Because at the end of the day, they are just that. Theory, speculation. We have simply what the word of God tells us. And we should rely upon that, even where it doesn't give us all of the details. I, I rather like what Calvin says about Melchizedek. He says very simply what we know about him. He was an upright and sincere cultivator and guardian of religion. And that's it. Now, what we know for sure about him is that whoever he was, he was a type of Christ. That is to say, he was a foreshadow. That is, he stood in a very particular role to point to, to stand in for, 
to foreshadow Christ as a priest and a king. Melchizedek was the first and only other person in the scripture described as both a priest and a king. And now Jesus comes as the true and ultimate priest king. And what's unique about this order of Melchizedek, and I think the point David is trying to make, is that this order, unlike the Aaronic order, is an eternal one. It continues forever. And why is that important? Because this Messiah that you have, who is your king, who is your priest, he will be those things for all eternity. Christ will be your priest forever. And that is very, very good news. It means that the sacrifice that Christ brings as a priest is good for all eternity. It it has no expiration date on it. It means that Jesus as a priest will never stop interceding for you. He will never stop praying for you. It means that Jesus as your priest will never stop representing you before the Father. He will never stop advocating for you before God the Father. Jesus is your priest and he will be so for all of eternity. That's why it's so important that he's after the order of Melchizedek. That's the point David is making. Christ is an eternal priest, a priest forever. Now, why is this text important? Why do we need to think about the Messiah along these terms of king and priest? What is so important to get from these two ideas? And I think uh, it's important for this reason. The nature of our Savior determines the nature of our faith. The kind of Christ we have changes and determines the kind of faith we must have in him. And what do I mean by this? Well, Jesus is your king. So what then is faith for one who is your king? What must be to submit to the king? It must be to honor the king, to come willfully, to come joyfully, to come and willfully submit to his authority, to enlist in his armies. That's what faith means if your Messiah is your king. Likewise, what does it mean if your Savior is also your priest? What is faith? Well, it means that we need to trust in his sacrifice. It means that we need to rely solely and completely on the sacrifice that our priest made for us. And that means casting out all of our other works. That means casting out all of our other boasts. That means casting out anything and everything else that we think might bring us closer to the Father and simply trust entirely on the finished work of our priest. If Jesus is our priest, then we need to let him take us to the Father. That's why this text is so important. You need to see who your Savior is. You need to see him in all of his glory. You need to see him in all of his splendor and all of his roles and all of his works so that you can believe in him, so that you can glory in him. Brothers and sisters, there's just one application tonight. See Christ. See him as your glorious king. See him as the perfect priest. And see in him that he is absolutely everything that you and I need.
not just now, but for all eternity. Let's pray.